You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Joining me now all the way from Europe is Darren Willoughby. He is a director at the African Defense Review and has nearly two decades experience in conflict analysis and is a frequent contributor to Defense Web, Flightcom and other publications. Along with other senior staff from African Defense Review, he provides a free of charge fact check service for journalists seeking clarity on defense and conflict issues and events. His focus is on civil military relations, peacekeeping, the structure and organization of both armed forces and insurgent groups, and the effectiveness of military operations. Darren, that is a very impressive CV. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'll tell you what's more impressive, Darren, is that when people start researching you, they're going to see that incredible beard. <laughs> it, uh, it isn't quite as, as, as intense these days, but yeah, it, it definitely helps with staying warm in winter. Oh, most definitely. Darren, so one of the things that you mentioned here that's so important, or that's mentioned rather on your bio um, on the Accord Group, is that you offer this fact-checking um facility and that to me is what's so critical i follow you religiously simply because um i'm not just a military vet but i'm somebody that's very closely involved with investigations that may involve the private sector colluding with the pri- with the public sector um for the plunder of public funds in other words tenders that are set up to fail tenders that are, are created specifically to take money out the fiscus and there's always a concern when we're dealing with big amounts of money and, of course, one of the biggest budgets in South Africa would be that of the South African National Defense Force. And you've expressed concern. You've also helped clarify a few things um, over the last few years. But in particular, more recently, what drew my interest was your commentary relating to the grounding of our our fighter aircraft that's used for defense, etc. Do you want to just let us in a, in a little bit into what is going on and why it is that our aircraft within the South National Defense Force or the Air Force for that matter are currently grounded? Sure. So the root cause of, I mean, all the Air Force's words really comes down to uh, a lack of budget. Uh, over the last 20 years, they've been you know, underfunded more and more and more as time's gone on. And uh, really, you can't operate an Air Force of this size or, or this kind of mission set on the amount that, that it's been given. That being said, though, the gripping and grounding um, has a few more, more direct causes. I'll go into that in, in a moment. Uh, effectively, there's two parts of this. The first part is the budget aspect, and that um, the allocation to, to the unit was, was reduced quite substantially in the last two years. The second is a mismatch between um, the Air Force and Arms Corps and Saab as the, you know, the, the, the OEM for the aircraft. So the first part, the budget, um, I mean, the, uh, the budget for the What's known as the Air Combat Division in the Air Force, which, which contains the, you know, um, the, the, the Gripplins and the Hawks, was reduced to only 340 million rand this year. Um, to give you an idea, I mean, a few years ago, that was a budget of about 1.3 billion rand. So it's a massive, massive cut and reduction. I mean, um, more than, you know, 300% cuts in, in that budget. And it's completely insufficient because really the cost of operating 26 uh, Gripplins and 24 Hawks is at least, I mean, we're talking about a billion rand a year, if you can operate them correctly. Um, well, I mean, to, and to operate the squadrons the, the at full strength, really, it's probably going to be about three to four billion rand a year. You know, fighters don't come very cheap. So the issue you have here is there's multiple parts to the cost of operating squadrons like this. The first cost is you have to maintain um, two sets of contracts with your suppliers. Suppliers could be your OEMs, could be suppliers of parts, can be companies that maintain, for example, your engines. 
I mean, fighter aircraft engines are enormously complex uh, pieces of equipment, and uh, it's rather expensive to, to establish the capability locally to to, to um, service and maintain them. So typically, what happens is you have a contract with, let's say, GKN of of Sweden. Uh, to every time we want to have an engine refurbished or replaced, we pop it in the box, ship it over to there, and they do it for us. So you have two kinds, two parts of this contract. You have a, a fixed contract, which is basically um, or more like a, it's, it's a kind of retainer in the sense that you have access to um, support, technical documents, assistance, advice, uh, membership of, of certain you know forums and all the rest for um, for troubleshooting. Um, really, and, and around being able to maintain the, the aircraft as a system. Then you have a variable portion, which is about the ability to send parts back and forth um, for you know um, ad hoc repairs and, and, and maintenance. And typically, that also has a, a fixed portion, which is kind of a retainer. And then you have uh, you pay extra for every additional um, part you send. That's normally how it's done. The problem is, of course, is that this, this doesn't come cheap. The cost of those contracts swallows up basically everything that air combat's been getting. So once you pay that, you have no money left for um, for flying or for operations or for any you know, of, of that nature. That's the main issue. So the first thing is the money is too short. Secondly, though, there have been plenty of issues in terms of being able to negotiate through arms calls. So you know, arms calls' job in, in the in, in the um, South African context is that arms call is meant to be the procurement agency for the SANDF. So the SANDF doesn't um, approach companies like Saab or BAE or the rest directly. They go to arms call with requirements. Arms call then engages with the, with the, the, the supplier, whoever it is, and they then manage the contracts throughout its life cycle. Uh, the problem right now, though, is that there's a, there's a severe disagreement between what arms call believes has to be put in place for the contracts, including elements of um, local con- content, and what the Air Force believes is required. Uh, and that's caused a, also a delay of its own on top of the budget issues. So, so, we, so uh, we're going to take a quick break and listen to our, our ads. When we come back, I want to talk to you more about the way this budget has been allocated because it seems slightly skewed because we have these aircraft for a specific purpose and it seems as if having grounded aircraft that money has been pumped into doesn't make sense, especially when one looks at the other operations that South Africa is currently involved in. So when we come back, I want you to, to please just – Give us an understanding of what these aircraft were actually purchased for, the change in the dynamic with respect to the way the SANDF now operates compared to the way it operated three decades ago, and why it's so critical that these aircraft cannot be grounded. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're in conversation today with Darren Ulifi on a very important subject, and that is the capability and the challenges um, that are currently faced by the South African National Defense Force. We've spoken about the South African Air Force in particular with regards to grounded aircraft, and we're going to be carrying on um, on that vein for a couple of minutes so that Darren can explain to us the importance of having the aircraft, what the aircraft are now actually used for, and why having them grounded kind of defeats the purpose. So... I mean, the Gripplins are our only fighter aircraft. I think that's the most important thing to understand. It's the only asset we have for air defense to be able to protect our airspace against any, you know, potential incursions. Uh, they're the only asset we have for, you know, fast jet reconnaissance, um, be able to, like, conduct rapid strikes, for example, against, um, other targets around, in any kind of, um, territory. To give an example of that, in the Battle of Bangui back in 2013, when South African troops came close to being overrun, 
the immediate response was to send a whole bunch of resources from South Africa upwards to go and, and respond. The very first assets that were available and within range were flights of four Gripens that were flown by Dolan and Zambia and flown to Kinshasa in the DRC. Um, what they do as fighters, they give you a much, much faster ability to react to certain situations uh, and be able to be on scene much faster than, for example, Wayfox or light, light, light attack aircraft. So they're really a highly, um, well, a highly useful uh, um, asset that can be used for many, many different purposes. But the prime purpose is to protect our own airspace and protect the airspace above any of our troops wherever they may operate. Um, in terms of what's happened, though, so our entire defense force structure and um, really our defense force policy and mindset instead of missions is based primarily on two defense reviews, 98 defense review and 2015 defense review. And um, these both envisioned a higher budget than what the defense force is currently receiving. So they kind of envisioned that the defense force budget would remain at about 1.5% of GDP. Um, and currently it's about 0.89% of GDP. So you have this, this issue where effectively the, the defense budget is less than half of what it needs to be uh, for the size of the force and for the amount of missions the force is required to do. Um, I mean, as I said before, if you want to operate fighters, you've got to pay a certain amount of money. But, you know, there's no... You can only save money in so many ways. You're going to be so efficient. But ultimately, you're paying in dollars and euros for components, for parts, for fuel, for aircraft. And um, you cannot get below a certain amount of money if you want to operate fighters uh, at a high enough level that you're able to, to keep your pilots current, well-trained, and uh, you know, uh, able to, to fulfill certain missions. So like any defense force, I mean, in any defense force, the majority of the time you spend in peacetime is just preparation time. You're not actively going out and doing things. You're spending time on doing training, retraining, exercising, validating um, your approaches to make sure that you're able to respond quickly and competently at the moment when you're actually required. And the issue now, of course, is that uh, with that not being able to be able to happen, currently all the different pilots have lost their currency, which means that they're not currently qualified to fly, which means that even if we restore the aircraft to flight in the next, let's say, month or so, It'll take another month or so for the pilots to be retrained, potentially by flying to a country like Sweden where they, where, they can, where they can use those instructors, before they're again able to even start regaining that currency. And this is going to cost us more money. Well, of course. I mean, the issue is that uh, it, it makes – I mean, the amount of money we're talking about to keep these things flying and return them to flight is not that high. When you think about what we've spent on, on, on this, these, these things, and not just these, I mean, the, the ship's – you know, as well, the, the submarines, the, the Gripens, obviously, but also just other aircraft we bought. The fact that we're, we spent a certain amount of money on acquiring them, but won't spend the relatively low amount of money to maintain them and keep them flying at the right level, means that at some point we're going to be forced into just spending a lot more, um, you know, which is just, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Let's, you know, let's talk about the subs. You mentioned the subs. Are they currently serviceable? One is, yes. Um, so to, to, to clarify, the, 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 the typical operating model of submarines is you never operate more than one out of three at a time. So the, the model is, is typically two in the water and one out of the water. And of the two in the water, one's operational and one's on standby. Um, so that's not unusual that there's only one currently operational. The problem is, though, is that you don't have the rotation of the other two. So the ship that, that's, that's been you know, um, out of the water and then refit the SAS uh, Charlotte McZeke has been out of the water for much longer than it should have been because there just isn't enough money to complete the refit. 
you know, again, we get to the point of the fact that these things cost the amount of money. You know, it costs about 400 million rand to refit a submarine. Right. Right. But, but the SNA's entire budget for maintenance this, this past year was just 270 million rand. So let's get to the bottom line here. We spending an excessive amount of, of funds on manpower. We saw a move towards a one-force concept very similar to the American and the British system where they've got territorial forces, they have National Guard. These are reserves that are on standby. They're, current, they, 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 they're constantly trained to a point of readiness to be deployed should there be a problem. South Africa was going to follow a similar model, and correct me if I'm wrong, and instead we've maintained a very heavy permanent force, a very aged permanent force, a very costly permanent force, and this is one of the main areas that's draining funds from the Defence Force budget. Am I, am I correct in this assumption? If not, please set me straight. So partially. To an extent, it's not that the cost of employees has gone up, it's that the rest of the budget has kind of shrunk around it, and that the replacement of troops hasn't been funded properly either. So there's, to give you some clarity around this, um, I mean, the Defence Force's size isn't that big. I mean, there's only about 63,000 uniformed SLF personnel, which for a country's size and for the missions we're doing is not that large. You know, there's only about 14,000 or so um, troops that are actually in um, different, well, in actual infantry regiments. Uh, the Army itself only has about 34,000 troops in total. And, of course, that's split across, you know, infantry, uh, tankers, artillery, all the rest, you know, and support as well. So we don't actually have that large a permanent force, but yes, it is very expensive. And part of the reason is because um, it has aged out. So people are, tend to be on, on higher contracts, more different contracts. And uh, of course, the reserves are, are in, in a really, really bad shape. Problem is, though, it costs money to get to a point where you can save money on personnel. The mechanism that was created back in 2003 or so to improve the situation was called the MSDS, the Military Skills Development System. And what that was meant to be was basically that every single year, the SNDF would recruit in 10,000 or more personnel, or fresh recruits. They would then be able to, you know, go through the entire um, SNDF and slowly push out all the people who had aged out in their role. So the SNDF could then move to an upper art system where, you know, you only had so many years as a, um, let's say, a lieutenant, after which you then had to either, you know, get promoted or leave. And uh, it was a good approach. And initially, it worked for, you know, exceptionally well. It's a, it, it brought the SNDF's average age profile down by about, I think, six or seven years. And uh, it was definitely having impact on starting to rejuvenate the reserves. Because how it worked is that uh, MSDS is a two-year system. After those, well, it's, it's one-year training, one-year service. After those two years, you're either given a contract in the permanent force or you then um, move towards the reserves. So that's the way the reserves could then be, you know, over time improved and, 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 uh, you know, brought back, 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 back up to standard. The problem is though, is that with, with each year of budget cuts, the MSDS intake has been cut to the point where it's now about, I think, one and a half thousand people every second year. So it's nowhere near enough to replace people in the SANDF who are getting too old, who are, um, I mean, let alone enough to, to, to keep on feeding the reserves. So what you have now is the reserves are supposed to have been this, um, you know, resource that could be called upon as needed, but it really isn't. And even then, I mean, um, it's still, well, to give you, I mean, the only way the SNDF can currently patrol the borders is by using up about a million mandates of, of reservists every year. 
So even despite all this, the SANDF is still heavily reliant on, on the reserves for day-to-day activities. So, yes, the personal budget is too high, but it's really difficult to see a way that we could reduce that without losing capabilities. So if you were to, let's say, reduce the SANDF's permanent force capability by, I don't know, 10,000 or 15,000 troops, we would be able to do less patrolling on the border, be able to do less um, peacekeeping, and we'd definitely be able to do less things like, uh, well, fewer things than we saw in, in, in July, where the SANDF was able to do a mass deployment to support the, SA, uh, the, the uh, uh, SAPS. Um, really, it's just a factor, again, of um, we are not paying a lot of money, comparatively speaking, for a force of this size. And that is, of course, the biggest concern here. We we looked at having general support bases in support of having a, a ready and competent force to call up. We've deployed a lot of our competent members into peacekeeping operations. We've seen that we were able to, and I don't know, you can correct me, we were able to deploy, I think, brigade strength into into Mozambique. We saw just prior to the Mozambique deployment together with Sadek and others that there was a lot of training taking place at Luatla. We saw a lot of mechanized infantry type training taking place. And there seemed to be a message from the SANDF that they are prepared despite the fact that what used to be our RDF is currently deployed outside the country. For our listeners' benefit, can you uh, and, and, and help me here with the numbers? The last figure I knew was five countries, about 5,500 troops deployed. How many countries are the SANDF currently deployed in, and what are the numbers of our troops that are deployed in those countries? Okay. In terms of Mozambique, it's not a brigade deployed at the moment. Uh, the SNF contribution is majority special forces. And at this point, it's probably about between two and three hundred. Sure. Uh, there is a battalion on standby and there was intention to deploy brigade, but SADC opted not to ex- expand the deployment for various reasons. Um, partially being the lack of co- cooperation that they're getting from the Mozambican authorities. So nonetheless, though, that is still at least one battalion is committed back, back in SA as a standby force for that, um, that group in, in Mozambique. So in total, there's about one and a half thousand South Africans deployed overseas. Well, I say overseas, I mean, in other countries in Africa. It's not a huge amount. There have been periods of time where they're saying they have deployed more than 3,000, uh, you know, on different missions, including Sudan. Um, but again, we're talking about a, a dwindling support base here. So, the SNDS personnel count has been shrinking over the last 10 years, especially the last five years. And uh, it's becoming harder and harder under the current budget to sustain more capabilities. I mean, for example, you mentioned the brigade in um, the training area in Lohadla. It's a very nice initiative. The idea is basically to prove and exercise that um, a, a modern mechanized uh, brigade. The problem is, of course, is that we don't have the resources to be able to sustain it in the event of a war. So we can, you know, bring it together, arrange it, exercise it, but uh, it's not actually at this point properly deployable. The cost that we would associate with the deployment during um, the lockdown that we've seen during the pandemic, in your mind, are those costs justified or was the use of the SANDF justified considering all these other costs that, that need to be met where there isn't sufficient budget, like you mentioned, not having birds in the sky simply because there isn't enough money to put them in the sky? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, obviously the SANDF should not have to be used internally. 
these two lost incidents, the, the, the COVID lockdowns and the, you know, the July riots, you could argue they were special enough that you know, there was no choice or that it was required. I mean, we can get into the debates around that, but, uh, nonetheless, it is, it is the SANDF's secondary role to provide support to the SAPS whenever it needs it. And of course, the problem with the SAPS is that it is increasingly dysfunctional. And, uh, you know, more and more there's this call for the SANDF to step in and, 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 and fill the gap. Um, I think it's not necessarily inherently a bad thing when it comes to things like the riots as well, but the SANDF is almost never given back the amount of money it expends on these things. So it was definitely not fully um, compensated for the, for the July riots yet. It wasn't fully compensated for you know, the, the COVID response. So inevitably, there's an impact on SANDF's budget. Not only that, though, but there's an impact on you know, witness training, uh, troops doing courses. So every one of these deployments has a knock-on effect, which then further adds costs later on. So my argument would be absolutely, you know, outside of extreme cases, the SANDF should be used internally as little as possible. You know, we argued strictly or strongly against the deployment in, in, in the Cape uh, for, for, for gangsterism for that same reason. You know, the SANDF is not a police force and it's too small for this role. Uh, there just simply aren't enough infantry troops available to be able to do this on a long-term basis without severely affecting um, ongoing training and, and, and all the rest. So we, we need to take a break, go to ads. When we come back, I want to talk to you about this whole force multiplier concept that came about with the fight against gangsterism, deploying during the unrest as well as deploying during the pandemic. We no longer have the commander system. It was, it was disbanded in 2006, but there's now a new system that is in the process of being initiated how close we are to initiating that i don't know i'm sure you're going to fill us in on it but are they going to play a similar role to the commandos as force multipliers for the police specifically in rural and urban areas and will it work we're going to find out straight after this you're listening to the confidential brief with chad thomas on high fm We're in conversation today with Darren Ulifi from the African Defense Review, and it's a conversation we could actually have for days. So we're trying to get as much in as possible, but I promise you we will be bringing him back because there's so much to chat about. Darren, before we went to break, we chatted about the fact that the army have been deployed as force multipliers for SAPs, even although that's not their role. We have seen in the past, I think it was up until about 2003, 4, 5, and 6 thereabouts, with the disbanding of the commandos, how the commando units had been used prior to that as force multipliers, specifically in rural areas, as well as in support of the police in urban areas. Are we seeing a move going back towards this? Or do we believe that there should be more capacity within SAPs? So there's a kind of a sort of right, regression of this. Uh, the idea, it's, it's been called the Mzansi Home Guard. And rather than being a separate structure like the commandos were, it's going to involve the existing reserves. And a part of the purpose here is not just to provide security, it's also to provide um, some level of ongoing support for unemployed reservists and provide some level of, of additional sort of giving back to the communities. Uh, so it's really envisioned as, as a hybrid approach that provides some of the rural security benefits of, of the old commandos, but not quite with the same structure or the same uh, potential issues that the commandos had, one of which was that it was very hard to police them. Um, so this would be, I think, an assistance, especially in rural areas, because part of the goal with the Nazi Home Guard is that they will provide a secondary um, community intelligence role. Each, each member who, who joins us will, will be given a, a course in t- 
sorry, tactical intelligence, um, and will be basically taught how to handle um, looking for certain signs, asking questions in the community, and keeping their ears to the ground to know what's happening and what you know provide that level of early warning. At the same time, I don't think we're going to see them being much of a force multiplier, just because we don't have that many reservists available, and there's no funding to really turn us into a large force. So regardless, we still have to depend predominantly on the SAPS for this level of security. The Home Guard will be an assistance. It won't be a replacement for them. I see what you're saying. It's, it's, it's almost like it would be a force multiplier, but it's something that we'd prefer to, to see especially funds in that being geared towards keeping the actual mandate of the military, and that is in terms of their preparedness, rather than looking for other places to spend money when we currently don't have enough funds to be in that state of readiness. What do we yeah. need to do as a country, and what does our, our cabinet need to do in respect of defining budgetary requirements for the SANDF to bring it up to the standard it needs to be at? So this is the key question and the subject of a lot of really, really heavy debate. <laughs> the issue is twofold. I mean, if you want to have an SANDF that can do everything we need for it, for it as a country, so provide the full level of, of um, uh, defense of the, of the country, support the SAPS, be able to conduct peacekeeping and still project power on foreign missions, then we need to be spending at least twice what we're spending on the SANDF right now. Um, probably a bit more for, for a bit of time in t- to, to be able to catch up on all the things that have been degraded and lost over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, for example, to you know restore uh, 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 supplies of armaments, re- restore stocks of spares. So there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot to catch up. Of course, the issue is, can this country actually afford that? I mean, um, as far as we can tell, there's no fiscal space for, for a doubling of defense budget, let alone you know, 10, 20% increase. So the prevailing thought right now is that, okay, we're stuck with the defense budget as it is for the next, let's say, 10 years. So the only answer then is to reduce the SNDS size and mandate to fit within that smaller budget. And I think here there's a very important message that has to be put across that that won't be cost-free. It's going to mean we lose the ability to do a lot of things. It might mean we lose fighters. It might mean we lose submarines, frigates, the ability to do long-range patrols of our oceans. It might mean we can do much less border patrolling. It might mean that we can't um, defend the country in many different ways. We can't project power either. Uh, we may have to give up you know, all these different types of missions. Uh, and uh, yes, that has a cost to it. But there's no alternative if we want to have, if we want to keep the remainder of the force active and operational and competent um, under, under current spending. So that's really the choice. You know, I mean, to be clear, there are areas where we can get efficiencies. So it's not like there's nothing that can be done in terms of being able to improve the cost effectiveness of the SANDF. But there's a hard limit to how much of that you can do. And I mean, from what we can tell, we're looking at maybe a 10, 15% improvement uh, in efficiencies if you cut certain roles and all the rest. But that's as far as you can realistically go. So Darren, I have a pet hate and that pet hate is hearing people comparing the SANDF to the SADF, not understanding the two completely different roles played by the military pre-94, post-94. As a final question to you, can you please educate 
um, those that still have a misunderstanding why we don't have this massive capability that we had during the likes of Stratcom and in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the total onslaught of the late 80s compared to what we're now seeing in the 2000s? Of course. Uh, the issue there is just really, again, what you're willing to spend as a country, what you can spend as a country. We were completely overspending on defense in the 80s. So the SADF was, was oversized for a country's size. It was costing us a fortune. It's part of the reason why the, the, the government was also under such economic, stri- economic strain because it was, you know, really outputting, uh, I think, what, three to five percent of its GDP on, 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 on military spending, not including additional spending on, on certain R&D things. Compared to today, where again, you have 0.89% of GDP being spent on the SNDF and 3% of the government spending. The issue there is really, you cannot expect to get the same kind of capability, the same kind of size for, I mean, a, a force that is five, six times smaller in terms of spending. And of course, I mean, that's another factor is that, you know, the SADF was a wartime force. You know, um, you spend a lot more in wartime than you do in peacetime. And to give you an, an idea of that, between, you know, 1989 when the border war ended and 94, the SADF budget was cut more than half. I mean, dozens and dozens of squadrons and units were closed. Um, many aircraft types were retired. You know, it was, it was a massacre in terms of, of the capabilities of the force already. And that was before 94. Because that's how, I mean, the, the, the force's costs were completely unsustainable as, as a wartime force. And this is the issue. So it's completely unrealistic. I mean, it, it would be like looking at the, the RAF in 1945 and comparing it to the RAF of 1950 and saying, well, why is it so much smaller? Well, because it's a peacetime force and you're spending on other things now. Uh, and that's really the, the main issue. I mean, there's obviously been other issues too. You know, the SNDF leadership are not perfect, you know, not perfect in all the choices they've made. But ultimately, what it comes down to is spending. You need to spend a certain amount to get a force that size and that capable. I think you summed it up perfectly. The threat has changed significantly. It's a different um, need. But we still can't neglect the South African National Defence Force from a fiscal perspective. We need to look after them. Darren Ulifi, I thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking so very forward to chatting to you again in the new year because this is a conversation we can have for hours. Unfortunately, we only have an hour. And we're going to be catching up with you early in the new year when it's convenient for you so we can chat more about the proposed um, South African Defence Force budget and what we can hope to see within the next short to medium term. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it.